0: Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com and find them at FDIC at booth 2540. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit TenkataFabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tankata Protective Fabrics. TheFireStore.com, equipping protectors with passion. That's how they operate, and it's how they live. They understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Their goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit them at FDIC at Boots 110 and 111. Taking It to the Streets is all about advancing firefighter safety and operational integrity for the fire service through provocative insights and dynamic discussions dedicated to both the art and science of firefighting and the traditions of the fire service. The focus at Taking It to the Street continues to be straightforward, street-level talk With intelligent, stimulating, and provocative insights, and dynamic discussion with interactive dialogue, and most importantly, listener participation. Just like around the kitchen table or in the day room over a cup of coffee at 02.30 after a good run. And now, the latest edition of Taking It to the Streets with your host, Christopher Nall. Welcome to this edition of Buildings on Fires, Taking It to the Streets, on your street, in your city, across the country, and around the world. Taking It to the Streets is a monthly radio talk show program on fireengineering.com, and I'm your host, Christopher Naum. Again, we have another outstanding program planned for you, without exception, with what you, our listeners, have come to recognize and certainly expect. So we're We're broadcasting from the Midwest, and uh, we're actually in Tulsa, Oklahoma, broadcasting our episode here on Buildings on Fire, and it's somewhat uh, pensive and certainly quite a bit uh, melancholy, as uh, I I reflect uh, on on my very good friend, the late uh, Chief Bobby Halton. Um, Tulsa's not too far from Bobby's uh, home up, up just up the road on 169 in uh, Collinsville, Oklahoma. And um, I find myself here in Tulsa here doing a program and uh, um, not having anyone to visit. You know, we, we talk about, so I'm here to uh, do a couple of days worth of uh, programming, uh, some presentations at the Oklahoma State uh, Firefighters Association's annual fire school. And uh, certainly when you talk about Tulsa, and uh, both the uh, predecessors for uh, fire engineering uh, with Penwell and uh, um, and now with Clarion, um, er- everything sort of this was the center of the universe for for, for many, many, many years and such. Uh, you know, we're coming on the heels uh, of last week's uh, FDIC program, which was just absolutely breathtaking, inspirational. Um, I can't say enough about the... Um, the transition and the good things ahead for all of us uh, within the fireengineering.com and Fire Engineering magazine and all of the other uh, attributes and, and programs and uh, um, offerings that Fire Engineering has to offer. Um, we are certainly in very very good hands with uh, Chief David Rose. Uh, I think that uh, the inspirational keynote. Uh, the opening keynote uh, again if if you have an opportunity i'll just say this if you have the opportunity upload take a look at the uh take a look at the opening session and uh you'll you'll understand that uh there there's very little to describe the extent the breadth and the depth and uh the the vision of, of where we're going in the uh, in the days months and, and certainly the years ahead and i just commend the uh, Chief David Rhodes, uh, on such a, uh, an extraordinary um, conversation and dialogue that he had with all of us uh, on that opening day uh, last week. Uh, again, FDIC was phenomenal. We, uh, we did our, our programs and uh, also did a live uh, streaming podcast and a webinar right, coming from the uh, floor of FDIC. It was called FDIC Live, which was just absolutely great. Talked with my good uh, colleague. Chief uh, Doug Klein out of Horry County, South Carolina. Doug did an exceptional program on uh, resort firefighting operations and insights. And I did a, a program on fire officers guide to today's buildings on fire, which was a short version, very, very short version, talking about some uh, aspects of uh, today's evolving fireground built environment, and some of those continuing challenges. We have for the last uh, couple of episodes, uh, both on our programs on Buildings on Fire, as well as uh, on uh, Chief Danny Sheraton's, uh, the first two battalion chief program, talking about uh, reading the building, talking about the size up. uh, And actually, if we go back to our our episodes in the latter part of 2022, we also had a couple of episodes where we talked uh, quite extensively about some of the historical context of size up, uh, about the four primary areas of reading the building reading the fire ground, reading the compartment, and reading the company. The four distinctive corollaries that really form everything um, when we talk about sizing up, evaluating, monitoring emergency scene activity, that structural fires, they revolve around those four primary domain, domains of, again, the reading the fire ground, reading the building, uh, reading the compartment, and or slash fire. Uh, and then reading the company. And again, we've posted a couple of things over the course of uh, today on social media, both on our Facebook page as well as on Twitter. Those have been shared uh, liberally over the course of the day as part of our announcement for a program here on this episode. Our episode talks about uh, some specifics, and although it makes context to reading the building and size up and our building facts model, first arriving, construction, tactics, and safety, Uh, we're going to just spend a little bit of time here on this episode talking about tactical windows. And it's interesting, um, and the the reason I chose that comes on the heel of a number of other programs that we presented at um, nationally over the last couple of months, our discussion at FDIC, both uh, in the classroom, as well as some conversations we had in the hallways, Some of you may have been following our uh, FDIC week or during the course of FDIC week in Indy. We had our uh, signature reading the buildings insights from the surrounding area within the streets of Indianapolis, uh, whereby we were posting various images and providing some insights, although brief, um, again, some, some visuals and some insights and videos from the immediate surrounding area of the convention center within the downtown location. Just looking at a variety of building, occupancy types, occupancy risks, different vintages and eras of building all the way from turn of the century, late 1800s, all the way to the most current podium constructed buildings built over the last uh, eight, eight to five years of time frame. So, again, and this is no different than any of our jurisdictions. Many of you are experiencing either Um, very limited uh, new construction or alterations, but some of you may be seeing uh, some very dramatic continuing changes when we talk about the built environment, the evolving nature of construction, occupancies, a variety of methods and materials of construction. There certainly is no shortage of uh, of demands and challenges based upon what is going up in your first due areas. But when we talk about one facet, of our buildings on fire, and that revolves around the aspects of building performance and tactical windows. Um, We've discussed the predictability of uh, buildings, predictability of building performance, specifically as one of the fundamental elements of our models over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. It's really nothing new for those of you that have been following us. We talk extensively in just about all of our episodes about predictability, about different aspects of either one particular building type, whether we've talked about our Main Street buildings or Type 3s, talked about commercial structures or hybrid buildings, <clears throat> a row house or mega mansions, uh, commercial, conventional construction, They're just about everything. And I also state and advocate quite extensively by the fact that all buildings are truly predictable if we understand what the roadmap is to identify them, the five-star command model, the five and fives as we call it, to be able to identify the the critical, mission critical um, characteristics and those characteristics affecting our buildings that have the most immediate um, and concerning issues dealing with structural firefighting. In other words, there is such a complexity of building and building construction and architecture and that goes into our discussions that we've had <clears throat> concerning uh, fireground ground architecture even that 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 new avenue that we are continuing to evolve and sort of a uh, dialogue a little bit on uh, for those of you that may be first hearing that we talk about fireground ground architecture and actually the fireground ground architect where you know the commanding officers the company officers on on tomorrow's fireground, ground which is literally tomorrow, um, really are going to require and, and have to uh, develop skill set levels in and in a degree of knowledge and skills to help support their experience that they're gaining in the streets, experience on the job, their formal, informal education, types of information coming about from the kitchen table, the kinds of information extracted from, again, social media, online versions online educational opportunities and all the other different types of multimedia that can help support the educational and training process um, I think that when we talk about structural firefighting it, it certainly goes without saying that when we talk about yesterday's fireground and again we're going to segue into this conversation about today's fireground today's demanding fireground but Structural firefighting on yesterday's fire ground, again, we had common, identifiable building construction and methods of construction. Buildings behaved. They followed the rules of engagement and rules of firefighting. It was pretty simple, simple operation, tactics, direct engagement, prescriptive construction-based tactics, fire dynamics, match suppression, process, models, methods, practices. I mean, these are all the things that came about through decades of experimentation, decades of trial and error, Eventually, best practices percolated up. They were identified, captured, and those best practices were captured in the evolving uh, number of publications that became the foundation of our strategy, tactics, and and operational uh, uh, perspectives. I will say this, that, again, when we talk about firefighting back in the day, time was not an issue. Time was not an issue that required us to be watching the clock, to have a a level of appreciation and sensitivity toward the time element during the conduct of fire suppression operations. Buildings allowed us to do our job. Personnel knew and did their jobs. We had proficiency. We had discipline. We had rigor. Uh, it was mission above all. Clear expectations. Simple technology. Manual. Physical. Brute force. Brute force, and uh, certainly determination. Uh, but more importantly, again, we had time. We had personnel, we had staffing, we had people. Uh, we could mess up and still live. Uh, we could not know our job and still be part of the team and sometimes get away with it. It was accepted. Uh, we were slow to change, change was dismissed, debated and eventually vetted, accepted and then implemented. Uh, we embraced tradition really while we were making it. Um, just a, a little snapshot when we talk about uh, you know yesterday's fireground. And the two important points of that, is that we had time, and um, more importantly, we talk about the fact that the buildings behaved. Uh, the buildings allowed us to conduct ourselves in there. Now, it, it doesn't go without saying that we had plenty of issues dealing with building structural integrity, compromising factors based upon certain methods and materials, certain building types. Uh, they were common. They were understood. They were, they were recognized they were understood, and eventually best practices were developed and derived from them. And um, I'll I'll say this. is I always put the side note in there when we talk about, you know, has the fire ground changed? Uh, And I'll just uh, quote this, uh, quote, unquote, uh, each year a sizable percentage of the number of firefighters killed is the result of structural collapse. There are cases on record where the deaths from collapse were a direct result a faulty size up by officers because of their lack of knowledge of building construction, fire behavior, and the rate of water application needed. Uh, Again, quote, unquote. And those are the words of Chief Lloyd Lehman, who wrote those in one of the defining textbooks of the time in 1951 uh, on his book on firefighting tactics. And, you know, again, when we talk about construction, fire behavior, the rate of water application, we were talking about it in 1951, Here we continue to uh, debate and get into uh, robust arguments, and sometimes we're not seeing eye-to-eye, but we are certainly seeing the outcome of data points of uh, the results of research and development and those insights and those corollaries that certainly are suggesting some commonalities suggesting different ways of doing business, and uh, one thing certainly when we talk about the aspects of our, our theme around our episode dealing with tactical windows, and, and that is a higher degree of appreciation for the impact of time. Um, I'll say this: you know, one one of the when we talk about predicting fire behavior and the potential for structural compromise or collapse, so it's, it's fire within the building, fire in the comp- compartment, as well as compromise and, and collapse-related characteristics, either isolated or catastrophic within a compartment, within the fire floor, or within the building. Um, it certainly is the most challenging task facing first due companies and commanders at a fire scene. Usually the lack of information on the construction of the building, the fire size, the fire location, Fire burn time, the conditions of the building, the fuel load, fuel load packages, um, as just a, a few items here, um, makes the task nearly impossible. However, I would say that there, if there's key building considerations and fire fireground indicators, when presented, when recognized and identified for their relevancy and importance to the operational, uh, to the operation, operational safety is dramatically influenced, and decisions are certainly dramatically influenced for uh, subsequent operations. There are six predominant risks when we talk about the first due or initial stages of operation, and they revolve around um, six, again, interrelated areas. They include the building structural integrity, compartment fire behavior, the sustainability and the deliverability of water, the availability and the capabilities of resources, meaning our companies, and again, again, we're talking about building compartment and companies right right from the get-go, uh, the severity, urgency, and growth of the evolving incident and, and its priorities, and then the aspect of time, and I always try to refer to time relative to delta time, delta T, and that delta T is the one element that is so, so critical when we talk about our current fire ground uh, Operations, today's demanding and unforgiving fire ground, and the aspects of the compartment relative to the building structural fire, the compartment as it relates to the building and fire behavior, the degree of compartment and building resiliency and integrity over time, the predictability of our building, the degree of compromise and collapse that all buildings have. It may be negligible, meaning it's, it's zero, or it may be to the nth degree, meaning it's very significant. So on the lesser of the scale, it's uh, slight or negligible compromise. To the highest level, it is catastrophic, large area collapse potential. Um, it relies on the accessibility and the availability of building intel, whether it's formal, informer, Formal, if it's based upon our experience, if it's based upon naturalistic or recognition-prime decision-making, but ultimately it all falls and rests under the delta time aspect, the elapse of time upon our arrival on the fire ground and how that affects uh, the conduct and our operations. So, you know, we're going to talk about uh, some aspects of the uh, 20-minute rule We're going to talk about the 15-minute rule, the 10-minute rule, some best practices. We're going to talk about this evolving concept that we've been talking about for well over 15 or 18 years now, talking about it, and it's evolved to some degree. We talk about tactical windows, and those tactical windows um, are inclusive of key milestones or benchmarks during the conduct of operations and they are associated both with the company officer but more importantly with the commanding officers who are managing and conducting um, the assessment and the monitoring of fire ground operations one of the leading attributes toward the firefighter line of duty deaths coming out of the university of georgia's defining root cause analysis of uh, NIOSH firefighter line of duty deaths reports And one of their findings in the four categories that uh, were part of the root cause analysis, uh, one of the most significant deals with this. And I'll I'll say that, um, and and I'll read it verbatim, it's inadequate preparation for, or anticipation of adverse events during the conduct of operations. And again, think about this, inadequate preparation for, or anticipation of adverse events during operations. Put it succinctly in this fashion, we are very good at uh, reacting to an adverse uh, situation. Mayday, mayday, I've got a flashover, mayday, mayday, I've got entrapment, Um, I've got a structural collapse, I've got a flashover, I've got a backdraft, whatever the adverse condition is, we react to it with promptness and uh, we move accordingly with uh, expediency, Um, and rigor to address those particular issues. What we are not doing a good job of is identifying what we call the precursors, those things that are evident, that are observable, but may may not be recognized, Uh, the patterns that are are being presented, uh, whether they be a variety of different cues and indicators, both visual, uh, verbal, a whole variety of different uh, stimulations that are coming from different sources, to command or to the company officers, but specifically to the command level, um, they are not being interpreted, they may be misinterpreted, not recognized, um, or they aren't able to um, comprehend what it is that those indicators represent. And it's not until they manifest themselves in an incident do we re- suddenly react, and, and again, the pattern, it becomes very, very clear at that point. The picture has becomes becomes very, very apparent. One of the continuing challenges that I continue to see firsthand uh, across the National Fire Service uh, profession, from, again, East Coast to West Coast, being fortunate to travel as much as I do and, and really being able to interact from metro sized organizations and fire departments to the smallest of one-station rural organizations that, um, again, have significant response times, have a variety of different building types that are spread over a large geographical area, or that metro urban first due with a very high concentration of a variety of different buildings of era and vintages and uh, different types of occupancies and occupancy risks with varying degrees of fire load packages and conditions within the building, both the fire load of the building structure meaning the, the materials that go into the building, but also the introduced fire load, fire load packages, of those transient types of uh, conditions that add to the fire load and to the, uh, the operational challenges of both fire suppression mitigation, as well as the challenges of trying to control or limit the extension and propagation of both heat and fire within the building. Now, in other words, how do, how do I, upon arrival, how do I manage those aspects uh, within the structure in terms of fire travel, fire growth, and propagation as such? So we get into this conversation about tactical windows. And I think it's safe to say that for many of us, when we talk about the evolving nature of the fire ground, uh, if I was to say and ask the simple question, you know, what's the 20-minute rule mean to you? Um, for many of you, I would be getting a feedback, I would be getting some, some inputs about, you know, however you would describe it, but it's 20 minutes of elapsed time, it, it's something that uh, occurs based upon the clock ticking away on the fire ground, that someone has to do something, and normally, what I hear, and uh, again, it's, it's pretty consistent, is that uh, there's 20 minutes of elapsed operational time, and something needs to be done, and more often than not, the uh, conversation revolves around that the PAR is initiated or or some action that the incident commander is expected to do either formally or informally during the conduct of operations during that that time frame. Um, Some jurisdictions, some states, actually have personal accountability systems and incident command uh, systems that, uh, again, by virtue of statutes, by virtue of regulatory requirements um, within the, the um, uh, regulatory space of, of codes and standards at the state level, uh, say that thou shall, at the elapse of 20 minutes, conduct certain activities, which PAR seems to be the consistent nature. Now, when we talk about PAR, personal accountability reports, The basis of that actually is derived out of one of a number of different NFPA standards and and the standard in which uh, PAR is very explicit, especially on the 20-minute mark, is the NFPA 1561 standard on emergency service, incident management system, and command safety. There's also a new guide, the NFPA 1700 standard, which also uh, in the appendix alludes to some varying issues of elapsed time and operational considerations so we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, benchmarking and i just want to give some insights on it talk about best practices and again this is not scientific but i'll give you some of the basis of the uh, best practices across the united states how they were derived and how that relates to some fire run operation some of you again i would just draw your attention both to uh some of our postings during FDIC week, uh, if you go back to uh, and follow us on Facebook or on our Twitter account, you'll see we did provide quite a bit of uh, screenshots from some of our um, visuals during our program presentation. And uh, without explanation, there are some insights there that have that some uh, perspectives on benchmarking, perspectives on the tactical window, the 10 minute best practice, uh, some insights on the uh, The the none, the the 20, the 15, the 10, um, and then sometimes even less than that, which are really superficial and and innocuous, to to say the least. They they really don't uh, provide a a functional aspect to it, but uh, they are certainly part of that. So let's talk about um, a couple of things. So one of the one of the things, so if I was to say, all right, so what, what's the 20-minute rule mean to any one to any of you? And, again, I agree. We, we'd either get some, some accurate, uh, very clear, dis- distinctive responses back, or many others are just floundering around trying to figure out what, what it is that you're, they're trying to describe. It, it means something on the fire ground. It means something relative to the elapse of time. It has something to do with something, meaning an operational uh, time frame. And sometimes we again, get it mixed up, or we convolute it with both can reports, par reports, benchmarking, uh, sometimes believing that there's a, that, that something has to be done that it that it's not just a a point in time in which uh, uh, conditions can be evaluated, determined whether we're on the right course. In other words, it provides a pause during the conduct of the dynamics of fireground ground operations in which fireground conditions, uh, progress in particular is evaluated as well as the building's uh, predictability, building performance. So we have to be monitoring the performance of our companies during the conduct of engagement. And more importantly, we need to be monitoring the performance of the building and the performance of the compartment. So without getting into too much of the details as we've presented in our previous episodes, And reading the building and talking about the critical importance and the uh, really the the uh, integrated approach of building compartment and company and how important they are. Again, these are all connected in such a way that there is a basis. It's an understanding. It provides a modeling approach, and it makes sense when one steps back and looks at the big picture of this. So much of what we talk about is the building facts model first arriving construction, which influences tactics, which influences safety. It goes hand in hand. Um, When we talk about first arriving, and, again, there's no consistency across the American Fire Service. Um, Some would say it's the first 30 minutes of the operation. More often than not, we hear the first 20 minutes of operation. And, again, that 20 minutes of operation has a corollary to Uh, anecdotal information that has existed for many, many decades of time, and I'll provide you with some insights of where that came about from, and then also the 15, the 10, and sometimes. So it's nothing, 20, 15 or so, 10 or so, um, sometimes 5, and sometimes, again, 0. So there's some factors here that have to be considered. There are uh, a number of different standards and guides that are out there that influence This level of discussion, the most newest, deals with the NFPA 1700 standard, the NFPA 1561, 1500, 1710, and 1720. If you're not familiar with any one of those, I would encourage you to look them up. They are accessible online at the NFPA.org. You can at least take a look at the PDFs and gain some insights by reading through those particular documents. It deals, again, with the aspects of fire dynamics building predictability of performance, and also has considerations both at the strategic and the tactical level. So when we discuss these aspects of process specific to tactical windows, uh, it is a process. Tactical windows is one component of the evolving nature on the fire ground. And more importantly and succinctly, I'll say this, it's from time of arrival. It's from time of arrival of both the company and command officers, because there are two distinctive types of size-up and assessment. Uh, we may have uh, concurrent arrival of the, of both of those resources. Sometimes they're sequential, whether it be the first due uh, commanding officer's arrival, or more often than not, it's the first due company uh, that's arriving on scene, initiating the assessment, initiating the size-up, and then the clock starts ticking away. Um, The tactical window is a period of time that elapses from time of arrival, and inclusive in that are considerations for key benchmarking or time stamping based upon the um, elapsed time from time of arrival uh, during the uh, assessment phases, during the size-up phases, during the uh, development of the incident action plan, and then also based upon the degree of engagement and intervention. In other words, companies going to work. And then also there is an evaluation period, and then one of the other aspects of that is PAR. We'll talk about personal accountability reports. So there are two distinctive uh, considerations, both at the tactical and the strategic level, that are part of our first-arriving construction tactics safety model, and they are also embedded in the newest guide of the NFPA 1700 and then also in the uh, the NFPA 1561 standard. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the aspects of the 20-minute rule. So I'll ask the question, where did the 20-minute rule come from? And I've heard it all. I get guys looking at the ceilings thinking about this and that, and I've heard so many different (laughs) uh, explanations of where the 20-minute rule has come from, Uh, and eventually it it all evolves around, well, somebody tells me, meaning the individual speaking at the company, at the command level, at the firefighter level, that um, I've got to do something at 20 minutes. And where it came from, it's written on a piece of paper, it's an SOP, SOG, it's an expectation, or it's a regulatory requirement. So it is a regulatory requirement from the standards for 20 minutes of elapsed time in which the conduct of PAR should be initiated. There's also other benchmarks in which uh, an adverse activity that uh, occurs, meaning I have a mayday, I have a firefighter down, disorientation, a collapse, um, hazardous condition, whatever it may be in those categories uh, from a task or an operational standpoint, in which PAR needs to be conducted again those are derived back out of 1500 1561 and also alluded to in the 1700 standard the three major influencers that revolve around the aspect of delta t meaning the the delta time the elapse of time are inclusive of building integrity fire severity and company performance and company performance meaning what is the company capable of doing Uh, during the lapse of time based upon their physical exertion, based upon their own physical limitations or physical capabilities. So, again, building compartment and company, also building integrity, fire severity, company performance from the human performance or HU standpoint. So when we talk about building integrity, it's the aspects of compromise and collapse. It's the CC, Charlie, Charlie, slash Delta T, it's uh, the fire severity relative to megawatts of, of energy uh, over delta T. And then when we talk about company performance, it's the human performance or HU over delta T. So that is the basis. And, again, in the absence of some of the visuals that one would be able to look at and uh, associate that with, that is is part of that. We've talked about uh, – and another important facet of this is the aspect of uh, – of considerations when we talk about um, recognition, prime decision making, experience, awareness, knowledge, and again, the aspects and influence of science and technology, which go everything from the naturalistic decision making aspect of, again, our guts telling us something, all the way to the adaptiveness of fire ground operations based upon what science and uh, research and technology is suggesting. And again, it's, it's suggesting that based upon the variety of different insights, the various types of reports, the data points that are derived from them. So benchmarking has, for for many decades of time, revolved around this elapsed 20 minutes of operational time. And really the question of the day, as I've been alluding to, well, where did it come from? And it just didn't come from out of nowhere. It has been around for an extended period of time relative to decades of time. Um, and, again, it was more common in a certain era in vintage of our operations. Uh, historically, when we talk about the 20-minute rule being somewhat more uh, institutionalized, and I would say that when we came into the 1960s, certainly that was a, an era of time relative to far-ground operations in which the 20-minute rule, based upon a number of uh, evolving uh, operations and insights and even evolving models based upon the the types of books that were being written at that time, were part of those influencers. But one particular uh, book that came out in 1948, and that was the 10th edition of the NFPA Handbook, the Crosby, Fisk, and Foster edition, 1948 was when we first saw in a very concise manner, some um, insights providing us with uh, this aspect of perimeter wall uh, integrity, dealing with primarily buildings of type three, type four construction. Uh, Prior to that, there were numerous uh, and significant firefighter injuries and significant and numerous firefighter line of duty deaths resulting from operations working around or within the confines of buildings of type three and four construction so characteristically buildings of type 3 construction inherently have floor areas and wall interfaces in which the, floor, the floors will separate and the perimeter wall will remain hopefully will is supposed to again uh, in theory and in an application should remain uh, uh maintain its integrity Maintain its orientation and physical presence without the collapsing. To the uh, from a catastrophic standpoint, the floors would release. Our, our firemen's cut the bevel cut, um, and the floors would let go, and, and the um, interior would would collapse. Those are inherent characteristics of Type Three constructed buildings. Various types of release points based upon cast iron pockets and other uh, different types of cap systems within our both mill semi mill. Um, and heavy timbered constructed buildings of type four construction. This was very common in that, in that era of time, but even as we started getting into the 40s and, and subsequently into the 1950s, construction methods, materials, uh, systems, structural ana- anatomy systems were changing, as were the predictability of our buildings. But in 1948, in that 10th edition, Uh, You will find some graphics, you'll find some uh, narrative that started off in 1941 in the ninth edition, but were really truly captured in the 1948 edition. Along with that, a couple of different uh, textbooks were coming about, um, and actually one of the most uh, influential books that came out in the 1930s, and this actually was the, the first textbook for fire ground operation was the 1932 edition of the Fire Chief's Handbook. The fire Chief's Handbook, in that context, and again, we've talked about this on some of our other episodes uh got into different aspects of uh, consideration of the fireground. It was the first time in which uh, they talked about ventilation, and even the term opening up was promoted uh, prior to that it was very the, the the public opinion within the fire service was that this was considered a poor practice. But uh, in that 1932 edition, Fred Shepherds uh, was the uh, editor of the publication. We talked about size up, situational uh, conditions encountered. It was the first time in which life safety and property hazards were discussed. talked about the initial uh, plan of operation. That evolved into the uh, incident action plan that we know about today. But they talked about construction. They also talked about size. They also talked about, and, and again, I – I sometimes neglect to bring this up, but in that 1932 edition, again, 90, actually 91 years ago, they were talking about, in that definitive book, about the influence of wind-driven conditions on fire. And I'll also say this, and here's the sound bite and and the mic dropping, is that within that book, uh, the, the definitive defining characteristic that continues on today in terms of our fire ground modeling. They spoke about the best practice of uh, extinguishing quickly, confining the fire to the smallest area, direct to the seat of the fire by interior means when possible. So the whole aspect in the evolving science of firefighting even In the late 1920s and early 1930s, they were talking about science and how it was influencing operations. Uh, And then within that book, they started talking about some of the aspects, although very rudimentary, talking about some of the aspects of time. You've got to read through it. It, It's not explicit. But from that period of time, from the 1930s going up into uh, the early 1960s, 1962, the second edition of the – Fire Chief's Handbook was updated. Uh, Charles Walsh book on firefighting strategy and leadership was another defining book. 1972 Williams Clark book on the firefighting principles and practices. And I think the other two books that were very defining at the time, which started setting this whole premise up of looking at time on the fire ground, um, which eventually became Cole was Wealth with uh, Chief John Norman, but uh, Fire Attack 1 and 2. Um, and certainly um, uh, the classical book from Emanuel Freed in 1972 on uh, fire ground uh, tactics. So I'm just giving you sort of a very whirlwind perspective on some elements. We've talked about those in our other episodes in greater detail, but all of these eventually uh, surround themselves around one other aspect, and that is the, the uh, ODA loop, which is the OODA loop that Colonel John Boyd first talked about in the late 1950s, and it was developed in the early 1960s dealing with the observation, orient, decide, and act. And again, the cues and patterns are all defined by time elapsed time consideration. So in the uh, late 1940s and moving into the 1950s, the 20-minute rule became the norm. And think of it this way, in those buildings of type three and four construction, It was anecdotally captured when you take a look at statistics out of the NFPA, the various journals of that era of time, 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, property loss, firefighter loss, civilian issues, and so forth. Embedded in in that data is uh, information and insights and data points that strongly, again, suggested anecdotally, and it was known based upon uh, the capturing and the conversations at uh, uh, at conferences and various uh, 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 con- uh, con- con- convenes in which individuals would meet and talk about these at the local, regional, state, and then certainly at the national level. FDIC was a, a uh, pinnacle conference in which these kinds of conversations were being had. So best practices was 20 minutes of operational time. It was recognized that at the 30-minute mark, these building types that were more prone toward collapse um, were occurring around that thirty minute mark due to the nature of firefighting at that time uh, in which physical um, you'd have to physically go to a point of operation and get the attention of the firefighters. there were no you know consistent uh, radio communications and so forth. so in order for personnel to be repositioned in order for Personnel and companies to be moved out of harm's way, based upon what the time frame was. They recognized that typically, within 20 or so minutes, fire control was normally taking place, and, and if it was not, personnel were removing themselves from interior compartment spaces and going to exterior defensive operations as they started encroaching upon that 30 or so minute elapsed time mark, and. Uh, Primarily, that between twenty and thirty, that was the buffer. That was the buffer in which we were changing modes of operation, as Brunicini introduced us to in the mid nineteen eighties. So we went from offensive to defensive. You know, even though the terminology was not uh, as proceduralized or institutionalized at the time, that that buffer of ten minutes gave companies, gave the commanding officers, the chiefs in the street, the ability to reposition personnel, reposition uh, uh, physical assets of the companies, uh, the apparatus, and hopefully get out of harm's way before the adverse conditions were encountered. And that has stayed with us all the way up through the current timeframe. So anecdotally, the American Fire Service still does not recognize where the 20-minute rule uh, was derived from. I think we've really lost the essence of that even more so today. It wasn't until the introduction of lightweight engineered structural components in the 1980s. So in and around 1980 was where the modern era of building construction can be defined as. We saw the introduction of various types of lightweight engineered components that became part of systems, that became part of assemblies within our both garden apartment and residential occupancies which were proliferating throughout the United States. We saw new construction across the boards utilizing, again, a lightweight engineer construction versus conventional uh, types of lumber. And we also saw, as a result of fire ground conditions, both in our guard departments uh, in the Southwest and in the Northeast, and then also on the West Coast, the aspects of residential construction and the impacts of evolving uh, fireground demands. Many of us experience, again, the fact that we were getting sponginess. We were getting what's called deflection, as we refer to it today, but the sponginess of a roof, the sponginess of a floor system, as we were working across um, various types of engineered components, lightweight systems, whether it be wooden I-beams, parallel cord, um, wooden uh, trusses, the gable trusses, and a whole variety of different configurations and construction. And with that, we started correlating, So we, we and we saw the the close calls. We saw compromising conditions. We saw saw some structural compromises, not catastrophic failure, but isolated failures internally on roof areas and so forth. We started training. We started recognizing, and we also recognized that we no longer had the same time frame to operate within these particular types of bread and butter occupancies. And anecdotally, as we were continuing to institutionalize the uh, aspects of breathing apparatus, And we recognize that, again, with our 30-minute bottles at the time. And, again, uh, the the air consumption rates, even for our younger firefighters, was approaching around that 18- or 20-minute mark. And as the companies were coming out, that was also correlating to the near misses um, or the types of adverse conditions affecting compromise and or collapse or fire behavioral conditions. Again, we saw fire loading increasing. We saw the movement from inch and a half to inch and three-quarter lines, which was a natural extension of that, both in terms of tactical mobility, also the need for more sustainable gallon per fire flows to start being able to extinguish and knock down the evolving, increasing fire load packages. And this was in the early days, again, late 80s, early 90s. So all of these things were coming about. But one of the important pinnacles that occurred in the mid to late 1980s is that we were matching up and creating a benchmark. We were creating this this, uh, particular milestone in which, as the companies were coming out uh, for a bottle change, it was supposed to be an opportunity for the incident commander who was being recognized as such by title due to the evolving uh, conversations and the influence that Brunacini had with the uh, uh, Fireground Commander series and the Fireground Commander book, and as well as all of his educations and and, uh, offerings throughout the United States. I don't think anyone was um, isolated from hearing about the Fireground Command concept and all of these other aspects dealing with modes of operation, the incident commander concept, and so forth. So the commanding officers in the street were supposed to, again, based upon best practices and what was uh, conventional wisdom of the time was expected to evaluate the building based upon these newer types of construction and features and uh, make a determination on whether we should be doing something other than what we were doing. And, again, marginal, offensive, defensive, those were the the common terminology. Unfortunately, what we were doing and we were part of the problem is that as we uh, were coming out, we were just literally changing bottles and going right back in. So the benchmark really was fire out. And for many, many years, again, from the, from the era of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and right up through the 70s, the only benchmark we had was, uh, you know, companies uh, have knocked down, and fortunately, for the most part, our buildings uh, behaved and allowed us to achieve that benchmark of fire out uh, hopefully, without significant challenge. But unfortunately, we also saw time and time again in in, in in escalating numbers of incidences that adverse conditions were occurring prior to fire out. Whatever that time may be, normally fires were under control within that fifteen or excuse me, that twenty to thirty minute window. So that was sort of a given. Uh, if we weren't controlling them, we were going to different posturing of operations and. Normally we were out of harm's way unless we didn't respect some of the aspects of uh, perimeter wall collapses, collapse zone management, I and mean, there's a whole variety of different aspects that come about there. So anecdotally, in the mid-1980s, all the way up through in the, the late 1990s, we utilized bottle change-outs, air consumption, anecdotally, that at the around the 15-minute mark, which was, again, anecdotally best-practiced um, and institutionalized that, we were supposed to be, as commanding officers, monitoring the fire ground and making some determinations on whether to go from offensive to a defensive posture. But, again, that really didn't hold up a lot of water. And more. As the construction of materials and other evolving issues, especially with the fire load packages, uh, were being encountered, uh, that was not the case. We were seeing diminished operational windows in which we were conducting uh, engagement within the structure and around on top, within the compartment, and we were experiencing adverse behavioral conditions within the compartment, within the building, um, or in various areas in which uh, uh, task-level activities were occurring. So we were recognizing this, but we weren't putting our fingers on it. It wasn't until some insights coming out of line of duty death reviews and looking at timeline stamps and, and again when did these adverse conditions start occurring and around the same time frame we were getting a greater appreciation for uh, environmental impacts on the fire load package and firefighting operation concurrent sequential operations of opening up we started recognizing the very early stages and insights that eventually came about in the mid to late 19, uh, 2000s about flow path and vent path the aspect of ventilation-induced flashover. I mean, all of these things were all patterns that were becoming materialized. So 20-Minute Rule was born out of tenement and uh, Bain Street firefighting from the 30s and 40s. It was uh, conversed about in, uh, and captured in 1948 in the uh, Crosby, Fisk, and Foster NSPA handbook. It was eventually captured in various uh, aspects, both in Emanuel Freed's, William Clark's, um, Um, in Lloyd Lehman's uh, textbook as well as the 1932 edition of the Fire Chief's Handbook. So Walsh, Freed, Clark, uh, Kimball, they all talked about those aspects. So all the way up until '72, it wasn't until the mid-1980s, 1986, that Brunicini started talking more about the aspects of elapsed time and some of these considerations of accountability reports and so forth, and that we were having this, this more robust degree of accountability and watching the clock. I can remember very vividly uh, the first time I heard the Chief Brunacini talking about this, this, this aspect of time, um, and it resonated because, again, uh, with me in particular and many of our other my colleagues uh, back in my fire department uh, in Central New York, talking about, again, what was occurring on the fire ground, our near misses. Our types of fires, both in residential new construction, we saw a lot of new construction in some areas. Again, we'd have conventional legacy construction on one side of the street, and all of this new lighter weight uh, type of construction, modern construction in larger evolving single-family residentials, the types of single-family residentials that were the McMansions of the day, uh, that 35 to 4,000 square foot and inclusive of the larger residentials that are very, very common today. But these were all the things that were taking, uh, taking place at the time and were all were, were being uh, correlated, correlated around. So to fast forward um, and, and try to sort of uh, close out our conversation here. Um, so when we talk about tactical windows, they, the tactical window from a best practice standpoint is from time of arrival. Some organizations again, the clock starts uh, ticking and the stopwatch starts uh, going into action from time of dispatch. But that is only as good as consistency in the response. So, um, if we have an average, consistent average response time of that four to six minutes, that's tied into either the front end or the back end of the uh, of the initial start of that tactical window. So it's from time of dispatch, it's time of arrival, and some departments game the system from a time of first line First line in. So uh, best practices in the United States is from 10 minutes, the benchmark or the tactical window is from 10 minutes uh, from arrival, which primarily gives away six to eight minute, minute window of opportunity to conduct some degree of uh, intervention and engagement within the building. And again, when we talk about and again, I don't want to get too far into this. Uh, there's a lot of other aspects when we talk about sizing up and evaluation and things that are that are done. But the tactical window primarily is referred to the lapse of 10 minutes uh, from time of arrival of uh, the first two company or commanding officer in which eyes are first set on the, uh, on the building or the conditions. Um, the incident parameters are identified, priorities are are identified, severity, urgency, and growth the civilian life safety, an incident action plan is established, and then engagement is uh, is undertaken by, by personnel, by companies uh, in the sequence of arrival. The benchmark primarily is this, and the importance of this, uh, I'll stress, is that from 10 minutes into the operation, anything less handicaps our companies from conducting some degree of adequate engagement, in other words, putting water hopefully on the to of the fire, but it's water application. It's also movement within the building. So we're also considering the, the primary mission of conducting a an initial primary search, getting into the building, covering X amount of square footages within the building during the conduct of those initial operations. And again, depending upon the number of resources or the limitations, uh, the adequacy of per minute flow rate, tactical mobility, there's quite a bit that can be done by the, uh, um, the number of companies and personnel that are part of the teams that are undertaking those particular tasks. So a six- to eight-minute window does allow quite a bit of activities to occur, whether it be opening up the building, performing some type of primary search relative to uh, uh, the amount of ground covered, meaning uh, the amount of square footages of areas or number of compartments or room areas that are, are, are um are addressed and uh, uh, covered by either individual or concurrent companies that are operating. So we talk about movement within the structure by companies. We talk about water application of gallon per minute flow rates within six to eight minutes of either single or multiple lines. There's quite a bit of things that are occurring that are occurring that will influence the incidence conditions within the compartment and within the building's environment it allows a a buffer point that commanding officers are evaluating as we start encroaching upon the 8- to 10-minute mark to evaluate what impact we are having on the incident. And the benchmark at this point of around that 10-minute window, either slightly before or slightly thereafter, allows the incident commander to assess, evaluate, predict, and determine whether we are are on the right path, whether we are operating in a manner that's proactive to incident uh, stabilization and or mitigation, or in support of the primary uh, task activities that need to be undertaken. In other words, we may be putting water on the fire, we may be utilizing hose lines in a defensive posture to provide protection while we are conducting a search and or rescue and or extrication mission in a particularly uh, heavily involved or uh, hazardous uh, area of, of the building. Uh, so there's a variety of these different tasks. But as such, based upon current fire load, based upon building characteristics, based upon methods and materials of construction, the impingement, the exposure, the fire effects on the uh, components, whether they are burning, whether they are heating, it all revolves around the aspects of what that fire is doing, what the heat is doing, while it continues to either intensify uh, or or impinge within the compartment, within the voids, within the structure itself. And it's utilized to, again, determine what what might be suggested and how it influences the decision-making process within the next 10-minute period of time. So it's not... 10 and 10 that gives us the 20, and more often than not, if we do not do anything uh, in a proactive manner until 20 minutes into the operational time, it is highly probable and very likely, based upon certain construction and materials and occupancy types, as well as era and vintage buildings, that some things are going to occur that are going to impact um, operations. And that might mean the health, and welfare of the firefighters, the safety and survivability of both occupants, civilians, as well as the companies while they conduct operations within the compartment, on the fly, fire floor, or within the building. It is a given, and I can't stress enough, there are numerous examples of the first six to ten minutes of operations, and more often than not, there are so many different cited examples of uh the situations and operations uh, uh, turning south on, on the companies on the fire ground within that 12, 15, 18-minute window, and certainly by 20 minutes, it's very, very probable. And we have case study upon case study and line of duty death reports and after-action reports that conclusively accurately indicate that this is what occurs based upon both flame and heat impingement, the effects of the of uh, the conditions on the structure, on the compartment, its resiliency, its integrity, it all ends up going over that belt of time. If we don't have a respect and appreciation for that, um, again, then you're just fooling yourself. PAR uh, certainly has to be done at that 20-minute mark, again, based upon everything that we just talked about, or during the conduct of adverse conditions when they do arrive, PAR checks are, are part of that. But, uh, again, the first phases as we look at safety, as we look at risk, as we look at the evolving nature of the fire ground, this has everything to do with monitoring in a proactive manner uh, what what may be happening to the building in terms of building performance, structural integrity, compartment integrity, while we are engaging within the building uh, undertaking and the prioritized tasks that we have at hand. So if you have not considered an institutionalized benchmarking Um, We can certainly offer quite a bit of insights on it as as our program here has just delved into it very, very briefly. Um, And there's a lot to be said. There's different aspects dealing with both the resiliency, the resistance, integrity over time uh, during the conduct of operations as they relate back to the building. There are different considerations on fire flows, deployment, tactical mobility, tactical agility, per minute flow rate, sustainability. I mean, they're all part and parcel. It gets into some of the aspects of construction, dealing with our bare acronym, tactics, dealing with uh, adaptive fire ground management, safety as it relates back to human performance. It's those three fundamentals of the building, the compartment, of the company, and it also revolves around a risk management profile, which we first discussed and we continue to discuss based on the 2012 double line of duty dealt in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in which both a lieutenant and a firefighter were killed in the line of duty during the conduct of operations And we first introduced the concept of the risk matrix. So there's a T-plus minutes of elapsed time there are the benchmarks at the 10-minute based on best practices that we continue to see across the United States as a anecdotal type of survey that we conduct. Uh, and we still see we have some departments and agencies across the U.S. who have no benchmarking. It's uh, fire out, fire in control. That's the benchmark of success. And fortunately, the buildings have allowed them to reach that point. Um, there are the 50 minute uh, anecdotal. There are the 10-minute best practices which again came about through the result of the data points and the insights out of of line-of-duty death reports from the late 1990s, 99, 2000, 2001 era that started matching up with some of the UL in this report. So operational engagement periods the T plus X uh, over minutes, severity, urgency, and growth. These are all part of this continuum of, of today's fire ground. We have to have an appreciation for tactical windows even more so uh, we wanted this to be a somewhat introduction to it, and you can recognize that it's challenging at best when there are no visuals. but um, there are some things that we will post out. There's a couple of different uh, graphs uh, or excuse me some uh, some diagrams that are available online that talk about the origination of the event, uh, alarm processing, dispatcher uh, response, arrival time, t plus uh, there's also the reflex times again, upon arrival. There's a reflex time to uh, get off the apparatus, deploy lines, even just go from curb, from curbside into the building proper and move both vertically or horizontally in the building depending upon building layout. There's also going to be imposing factors that will take away from that time that may reduce the engagement period that has to be considered. So imposing factors may be weather induced. They may be social. They may be uh, uh, other types of impediments uh, that might again restrict or Result in uh, the loss of a last time before we are engaged in that building, which have to be considered. So, um, a lot of moving parts to all of this. Uh, the 15 minute rule again was something developed from really the mid 1980s up until around the late 1990s, 90, 1999, early 2000s. 10 minute rule really came about late 1990s, 99, early 2000s. Best practice is it still is uh, a very viable Uh, related considerations, and uh, we look forward to providing some more insights and how that relates back to the impact from, uh, again, fire dynamics, building performance, predictability, severity, urgency, growth, life safety, human performance. There's just a lot of different pieces in here, and we continue to input this uh, particular concept, both in our tactical and our building construction classes, because it has everything to do with fire operations on today's demanding fire ground. And if we don't have this appreciation of time, if you don't institutionalize it, and again, don't think that you have to, I mean, the best practices is that someone, primarily at a dispatch center, 911 communication center is telling command, hey, you're 10 minutes in the operations, you're now 15 or 20 minutes operation elapsed time, and that the uh, fire ground clock does not stop until command says, you know, stop the clock, we have the fire under control. Um, in the absence of doing that, there's also a number of different ways based upon best practices. This is something that we did back even in the mid-1980s, early 1990s, um, providing either some type of a digital clock uh, in the chief's vehicle, on your clipboard, on the pump panel, so that someone, somebody's got to be monitoring this clock. Um, and, it's, and it can't be uh, that the adverse event suddenly arises, mayday, mayday, I've got to collapse, I've got the entrapment um come and get me you know these are just not acceptable anymore however time and time again we still read and see that these are the outcomes of adverse events near misses and unfortunately line of duty death reports that that continue to identify tactical windows identify elapsed time and identify both building and company performance and fire performance meaning again the evolving aspect of uh, fireground conditions and how they impact our operations so just a very high level uh, i think almost a thousand level views maybe down to a 100 foot level and then back up to the 500 foot level based upon some considerations of insights uh, again building performance we're learning more about some aspects of that we can get into a whole variety of different uh, discussions about you know what type of of material is affected by flame impingement or heat impingement. And again, I I, I say this is that when we see the degradation of material, whether it be light gauge metal, structural steel, wood, that's burning, uh, metals that are heated, and what ends up happening to those related uh, materials within that 10 to 15 minute window. Once we start encroaching on 15 to 20 minutes uh, again, the bets are all off, and the, the fact that our buildings are able to withstand the effects of gravity and physics sometimes is just sheer luck that uh, some some worse things are not occurring during our operation. So just, uh, again, some, some major insights on that. I just wanted to give uh, some discussion points to it. Uh, For those of you that are listening live and have an interest in calling in, uh, we do have a little bit of time here. We can uh, entertain any types of calls. Our guest call-in number is area code 760-454-8852, 760-454-8852. So for anyone that's out there listening in, uh, we will take some uh, live call-ins over the next couple of minutes as we start closing out our program here uh, for this edition of Buildings on Fire taking us to the streets, talking a little bit about some just high-level insights on benchmarking on today's fire ground. Um, one of the things I will make mention of uh, coming up on June 10th, uh, we do have our next installment of our New York City Walking Firefighter Tour, reading the buildings in the streets of New York City and Manhattan. Both Chief Danny Sherton and I will be uh, facilitating another walking tour in lower Manhattan, uh, stopping at the uh, FDNY Fire Museum at the FDNY Fire Zone, a couple of other stops uh, in between, uh, having lunch at uh, uh, probably a piece of, pizza joint somewhere in lower Manhattan there in the village uh, or Soho. But uh, for those of you that have taken our programs, again, you guys are great. Uh, I certainly appreciate both Danny and I appreciate the the excellent uh um, promotions that you guys have been providing us. If you've never heard about our programs, again, Google it out. Send me a quick uh, DM message, and I'll give you some insights. The event is listed on Eventbrite, and uh, it is on Saturday, June 10th, coming up for our next, uh, our next trip uh, in New York City. And we look forward to uh, having you guys join us, uh, if you're able to, in New York City for, again, an exceptional opportunity, just looking at the built environment, getting into some considerations on building reads and size up, both at the tactical level, talking about construction in a very uh, consistent manner than talking about command and tactical approaches uh, and really uh, uh, working off of both uh, uh, Danny Sheraton and our and my uh, uh, background uh, over the last uh, numbers of decades of time to to give you some insight. We are taking the program on the road For some of you that follow me uh, and have followed me uh, over the last couple of years, we've got a couple of other programs coming up. We're going to be as part of our uh, lecture series at uh, Nebraska Fire School coming up uh, later this month. We will be doing our normal classroom lecture, and then we'll be going out to the streets of uh, Grand Island, Nebraska, as part of a fire school offerings that, again, is part of our signature program there, as well as a couple of other programs coming up, and then, again, some things that uh, Danny Sheridan and I will be uh, doing, hopefully, um, over the course of the next couple of months here. If you're interested in hosting a program, get a hold of me directly, and we'll talk more about those details. Again, it's just all about understanding uh, the built environment on your street, on your first view, and, again, uh, just gaining that, that insight about the importance of building construction and how it relates to everything we do on today's fire ground. So in the absence of any additional call-ins, we are going to uh, start closing out our program. I really appreciate you taking the time. If you're looking for some additional insights, I'd be more than happy to send you a sort of an overview on the PDF that provides at least the graphics if you're interested in the the insights that can go along with our broadcast here. We more than likely will be doing some webinars in which we can bring up the uh, visuals, and have a little bit more uh, specific conversation in a more constructive manner with a webinar-based uh, delivery. It's it's something we're toying with, and we might do that as a free episode upcoming uh, online, um, or we may, uh, again, uh, provide some additional insight on one of our programs, whether it be on Chief Sheridan's program, on Chief Klein's program, uh, or on our program here on Buildings on Fire Dayton, to the Streets. So without further ado, again, until next time, companies are in quarters and off the air. Stay safe, but keep in mind there's a job being worked somewhere in the streets in your city, across the country, and around the world doing what we do best and being who we are, and that's firefighters. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. And until our next episode of Buildings on Fire, taking it to the streets, this is your host, Christopher Nong, signing off. Thanks again. Stay safe. Until next time.